Oh my God. I remember, uh, where is Boris? I don't know whether Boris or Patrick are here, but I remember being here in, I did my first NextWeb uh, speech 20, uh, 2008, and it was a lot smaller than this. So these guys have really grown dramatically. It's one of the best events, and I'm honored to be here. It's great always to be in Amsterdam. Many of you know there's been a, an ongoing debate over the last 20 years about the achievements of the digital revolution. A lot of debate about, we were promised, we were promised many things about the internet revolution, about the digital revolution, by optimists, some even utopians. We were promised more equality, more jobs. We were, cult we were promised a, a cultural renaissance. We were promised that the, the business model of Silicon Valley the free model would benefit everyone because we'd get all this great stuff for free, free search engines, free social networks, and that everyone would benefit. This has been a debate that's been going on for about 20 years. At first, most people thought that this was true. Most people thought that the digital revolution would actually benefit everyone, everyone uh, that, it, that it was one of the, the best things that has happened over the last 50 years, that it was radically improving society, economics, culture that it was good for us, that it was making us happy, above all, happy, connecting us, uh, adding meaning, richness to our lives, making society better places. I was one of the few people back in 2007 when I wrote my first book, Cult of the Amateur, to argue, hold on, this isn't actually the case. When you unleash user-generated content, you undermine expertise, you create the ideal environment for fake news. In 20 12, I wrote a book called Digital Vertigo, which suggested that social networks weren't actually very social, that they were actually compounding na uh, narcissism and isolation. Then in 2015, I wrote a book called um, The Internet's Not the Answer, that was a, a broad critique of the architecture of the digital economy, saying that rather than creating more democracy, more equality, more opportunity, it was actually creating a winner-take-all society, a winner-take-all economy in which a tiny group of technologists and uh, a handful of massively powerful global companies were dominating everything. So this has been a debate that's been going on, as I said, for about 20 years. At first, people like myself were in a minority. We were the ones who were accused of being whiners and moaners. We were the ones who didn't get it. We were the ones who were reactionaries and nostalgic for an age that no longer existed. And some of those criticisms perhaps were fair. But over the last, I think, about five years, and particularly in the last couple of years, my camp, my argument, which criticizes the digital revolution, which suggests that it, rather than creating more equality, it's actually compounding inequality. Rather than creating more jobs, it's creating uh, a looming jobless crisis, particularly associated with AI. Rather than enabling a cultural renaissance, it's actually compounding isolation and creating fake news and trollery and all the other things that we now take for granted about Facebook. And of course, rather than creating ideal new business models, the so-called free model, it's creating what many of us now call surveillance capitalism, in which we're watched all the time on networks like Facebook and Google, which supposedly are free, they're anything but free, and we've been turned into the products. 
Now, my argument, I think, is increasingly accepted, and it's rather embarrassing in some ways, that it's now become almost the orthodoxy. Uh, some people say, well, how do you feel? You've been arguing in the minority for a while, and now suddenly you're in the majority. What I feel, rather than vindication or any kind of moral victory, what I feel is that now the real challenge begins. Because I've never been a Luddite, I've never been against technology. In fact, my background is as a technology entrepreneur. I'm from Silicon Valley. I'm not against technology, but I'm against many of the ideals, many of the principles, many of the organizations which has currently driven the digital revolution. So now, in my latest book and in my latest mode of thinking, the real challenge starts, how to fix the future. Because we know we have a lot of problems. Everyone here will acknowledge it. Even Mark Zuckerberg acknowledges it when he's dragged before some sort of committee. Everyone realizes that the digital revolution is not working out as it was supposed to. Everyone understands that it's creating, there's no doubt, the five most highly capitalized companies in the world are all West Coast tech companies. Everybody knows that technology and AI in particular is in the long term going to take away many of our jobs, many of your jobs. That it's replacing drivers, that it will replace doctors and lawyers. Artificial intelligence has been created to replicate us. It's very exciting in many ways enormous amount of entrepreneurial opportunity, but the reality is that it's inevitable that it's going to create a job crisis. We're surrounded, as I said, with the, with the, with the casualties of social media, the bullying, the sexism, the hatefulness, the anonymity, the destruction of our democracy by professional trolls in Moscow and elsewhere. And of course, as I said, Digital surveillance, uh, 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 surveillance capitalism is the thing that's undermining our privacy and our sense of self. So what to do about it? How do we fix it? That's the challenge now. That's the thing that I address in this book. I spent a year traveling around the world. I went to Estonia and Singapore and India. I spent a lot of time in Western Europe. And of course, living on the West Coast, I. I I, I talk to many venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, and policymakers all over America, both on the West and the East Coast, in Washington, D.C., and in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. So how do we fix the future? This book is not theoretical. It's not abstract. I didn't sit in a room and say, how can we ideally fix the future? There's nothing utopian about it. I actually went out and talked to people who were fixing the future, who were building better, more viable business models, who were regulating this economy to create a more level playing field that will enable more entrepreneurs to compete with the, the giants like Facebook and Google. I went to schools which were reinventing education to enable people to learn, to be educated, to be prepared for this new world of artificial intelligence, where the very definition of what it means to be human is key. So what are the themes in the book? There is a meta theme. I call it Moore's Law, but it's not the Moore's Law most of you know. You're all familiar with Gordon Moore's Law. The law that, Kay, that, that Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, created in 1965, suggesting that the power of computer chips will double every 18 months. This is the scientific law, or prediction, that has actually been true, certainly for the last 50 years, uh, since 1965, more than 50 years now. Um, this is 
the engine of the digital revolution. But there's another Moore's law I came up with, because the consequence of Gordon Moore's law, Gordon Moore of Intel, is that technology has moved ahead of us. Most of us feel disempowered. We feel as if we're literally in the round here, as if it's whizzing around and we're staying stable. Technology is moving ahead of us. One of the great problems and one of the great challenges, of course, of the digital revolution is we've stayed the same. We're still the same people we were, not literally, of course, but as a species, we're the same people we were in 1965 when Gordon Moore, when Gordon Moore came up with his theory. But of course, the world is changing dramatically. In 1965, there was no email, there was no AI, there were no social networks, there was no blockchain. There was none of the architecture of the digital revolution. So technology has moved ahead of us. How do we catch up? I've invented another Moore's law, which I derived from a man called Thomas Moore, a 16th century Englishman, who wrote a book called Utopia. In that book, Moore reminds people, and it's a timeless book, even though it was written 500 years ago, its contemporary relevance, if anything, is even more pronounced today than it was 500 years ago. Moore reminds us of what I call human agency, our responsibility, our calling as a species is to make our world a better place. It doesn't matter whether it's in the Renaissance or the Industrial Revolution or the Reformation. Nothing has really changed. In Utopia, Moore reminds us of our calling as a species is to fix the future, to make the world a better place, to display our power, our social engineering, our ability to make society a better place. So agency is the meta theme in my book. If there's one message in how to fix the future, it's how do we reclaim agency? And of course, agency is particularly important in an age of AI, because artificial intelligence, the revolution that now is driving everything, the word internet, I think, is archaic. Today, every big company is an AI company, from Google to Amazon to Microsoft um, to Facebook, everyone is chasing this new dream, the new, new thing in Silicon Valley. And of course, the thing about AI is it challenges our agency, it replaces us, it replicates us. So the challenge of agency is double-fold uh, in the early part of the 21st century. Our great fear is that, and, and some people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk believe that this is actually realistic, our great fear is that the algorithm will acquire consciousness and will be enslaved by computers. I'm not sure that's the case. But certainly the issue is one of how do we define ourselves and define our agency in a time of artificial intelligence? How do we carve out our space in this new world? Because it is a new world. The drama of this new world is just as intense as the drama of the Industrial Revolution in the middle of the 19th century. And back then, too, we had to carve out a new role for ourselves. We lived on the land and then we went to the city and worked in factories. It was enormously traumatic and it was a trauma that lasted a century. The trauma of digital, the disruption of digital is just starting. If anything, I think we're in the very earliest stages of the real trauma. So we've got to be ready for this. We've got to fix that we fix the future by seizing agency. Being, having agency is what makes us human. That is the thing that distinguishes us from algorithms. This is not necessarily my idea. There was a woman called Ada Lovelace, a mid-19th century mathematician, 
the daughter of Lord Byron. She was the woman, she was the business partner of Charles Babbage. She was the woman who invented the very idea of software. She is the mother of software. She's probably the most influential and, and not so much well-known figure in the history of computing. And she made the point in the middle of the 19th century that algorithms depend on us, that algorithms can't think for themselves, and nothing's changed. Software back in the middle of the 19th century and software at the beginning of the 21st century are still the same. So agency is everything. How do we display agency? There are five key pillars or themes that I argue in the book. Themes, pillars that we've always used to fix the future. The first is regulation. The first is the use of government to control technology, to manage it, to massage it, to make sure that the technology is and technology companies are driven in ways that benefit us. The second is innovation through entrepreneurs. The third is the will of consumers. The fourth is citizen engagement, the purest manifestation of Moore's law, and the fifth is education. It's these five principles. Think of them as the sort of principles almost like in a technology stack. These are our tools, maybe even our technologies for fixing the future. Now note that I haven't talked about technology itself. I don't think technology is the way to fix the future. I don't think there's an app to fix the future, and I don't talk in my book much about blockchain or AI or augmented reality or any of these other technologies, not because I'm against technology, but because if we are to come up with human solutions for all these issues and problems and challenges in the early part of the 21st century, we have to use human tools. So what are the examples I use in the book? When it comes to regulation, Europe is, of course, leading. That's why it's so nice to be here. Europe is leading America in making sure that we rein in the irresponsibility of uh, large tech companies and we reshape the architecture of the internet economy to benefit us. Let me give you three or four examples. Europe is leading in creating uh, laws about data, data regulation, which are giving power back to the consumer. The GDPR, which you've all been hearing about in this event and which has just been launched this, this week, I think, in Europe, is the thing that will tip the balance of power back to consumers. It's really important that governments prioritize antitrust. The way to fight the large monopolies, these winner-take-all companies, is to take them on in the courts. The Americans, for one reason or other, particularly because of the paralysis of American government, aren't able to do it. Much of, it's always easy, of course, to blame Donald Trump, but Barack Obama also has much to answer for on this front. In my book, I talked to a woman called Margaret Vestager, just up the road in Brussels. She is the one who is taking on Google. She's taking them to court. She, indeed, is the one who fined Apple $12 billion for not paying their taxes. And individual European governments are also taking on these powers. Individual European governments, like Germany, for example, are forcing Facebook to behave like a media company, making them accountable fining them when they're, not, when they're publishing material that's offensive or illegal. So the role of government, of regulation, is really important in our ability to fix the future. But it's really important to underline that really effective regulation is also innovative. And regulation doesn't work in a vacuum. I'm not calling just for regulation. We also need, of course, new, a new wave of innovation. 
back in 2000 and uh, back in 1998-99, Microsoft had essentially killed innovation. They were trying to monopolize the digital economy. We're back there today. We need to revitalize the internet economy. We need to reopen innovation. And I think laws like the GDPR will enable a new wave of entrepreneurial innovation. Uh, uh, data lockers and lots of opportunities for new kinds of uh, business models which, again, as I suggested, don't turn us into products. Consumers also have an extremely important responsibility for shaping the future. We've seen it in other industries. We've seen it, as I note in my book, in the car industry, in the food industry. Consumers need to be more demanding. Consumers need to push back on the irresponsibility of many of these large companies. We're already seeing this with Delete Facebook. We're already seeing it with consumers recognizing that they don't want to be turned into product. The role, of course, of citizens is key, and, and my book has a whole chapter on different kinds of citizen initiatives, from lawyers who are making sure that Uber drivers are properly respected in the courts and are, 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 are given their security, to prominent programmers and, 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 and uh, uh, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who are demanding that new companies and programmers and technologists take more responsibility for their product. One guy who I interview in the book called Tristan Harris, who, you, who, who you, many of you will have known, is calling for the creation of a, what he calls a, a kind of equivalent of a Hippocratic Oath so that software programmers and designers and entrepreneurs don't purposely create addictive products. We've been through this before with other industries. We've been through it with the food industry. We've been through it with the car industry. And in every industry, consumers and citizens have come out on top when they demand better products, when they articulate their agency. Last but not least, education. I have a chapter in which I go to new kinds of schools Schools which are not focusing on industrial skills. Schools which are focusing on, as uh, I'm quoting one teacher at the school, a Waldorf school, and of course the Waldorf school principals were born in Europe, in Austria, uh, with a man called Rudolf Steiner at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, schools which are developing agency, the muscle of agency, teaching children to think for themselves, teaching children to be empathetic, teaching children to be creative, because that's the greatest challenge of all. The education challenge is long-term and abstract, but perhaps it's the most important one. We need to prepare kids for this new world, a new world where the algorithm replaces much of what we do. But the algorithm also creates tremendous opportunities. Think of it in medicine. Sure, there'll be algorithms that will replicate much of what a doctor does and designate disease and be able in, in, in a millisecond to be able to do research which no human being can do. But an algorithm can't sit down with a patient and talk to them about their illness. An algorithm can't articulate bad news or good news. An algorithm can't be empathetic. An algorithm can't give this kind of speech. An algorithm can't write books like How to Fix the Future. An algorithm can't sit in the audience. An algorithm cannot demonstrate agency. That is what we do. That is our place in the 21st century. And that's the kind of education system that we need to stimulate. It needs to be radically reformed from the top-down industrial uh, in, uh, education system, of course, which encouraged rote learning, which treated us like computers. 
the exciting thing about the AI revolution, the exciting thing about what Moore's law, Gordon Moore's law has delivered us, is that we've been freed from that. Perhaps for the first time in our history as a species, we are able, or we will be able, to fully realize the kind of creativity and empathy um, of our species. But we've got to work for it. It's not just going to be delivered like a stork delivers a baby, or supposedly a stork delivered a baby in the middle of the night. Agency is everything. We each have a responsibility, particularly those of us in the tech industry. It's not going to happen overnight. It will happen with the combination of things I talked about, regulation, innovation, consumer action, citizen engagement and education. It's going to take time. It will take a generation. But it needs to happen now, because the time today is right to fix the future. If we don't start addressing these profoundly disturbing structural issues of the digital economy, then in 25 years, the future will be unfixable. Thank you.